Specialty Story, session number 130. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here. Every episode where I get to interview an amazing physician about their specialty, about their journey to medicine, to their specialty, and what they are doing day in and day out. This week, we have a great discussion with a program director. Last week, we had a great discussion with a psychiatrist. And this week, we have a great discussion with a psychiatry residency program director. And we dive in a lot more into the application process and what a program director may or may not be looking for. Obviously, Dr. Curry, who we're interviewing today, Dr. Jason Curry at the University of Arizona, is uh, just one program director. And so take his his information, his knowledge, his wisdom with a grain of salt, but a lot of it will be applicable to other programs as well. So let's go ahead and jump in to our discussion with Dr. Curry. We start the conversation by finding out what brought Dr. Curry to psychiatry to begin with. So my introduction into psychiatry really only happened late into medical school. I had entered medical school thinking very much that I would go into family practice. Uh, My father's a family practitioner, and he's really the wholesomest version of the quintessential country doctor, (laughs) where he would see patients in rural areas, he'd go drive out to see family members when they couldn't make it to the clinic, when they couldn't pay, he'd accept small gifts of appreciation. Of course, he never asked for them, but they'd bring it like things that they brought from their garden or crafts that they made at home. (laughs) I brought uh, you a chicken. (laughs) What's that? I brought you a chicken. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Not a chicken. Yeah, no no chickens, but eggs. I do remember eggs growing up from from patients. And that was really a, a wonderful wholesome role model for me and that it was a blessing to really see him involved in a community and also in patients' lives to see them develop through their lifetime. So he would treat them as they were children and then as they became teenagers and into early adulthood, then he would deliver their babies and take care of grandma and grandpa. And so it was a really comprehensive care which I liked. I liked the idea of continuity of care in family medicine and really being there for a person throughout their lifetime to see the trials and tribulations involved in people's lives. So psychiatry was not on my radar, but into my third year rotations, I was on the psychiatry rotation and it was really just a series of mistakes that I made when I was on the rotation that I had to learn from very quickly in order to deal with a different set of patient issues and understanding patients a bit more deeply than I had before. And it was dealing with those mistakes that really led me to a deeper appreciation for psychiatry and for people's stories. So it was the medical school experience that really set psychiatry apart for me. 
I think a lot of students listening will will hear that story of your father and and that kind of quintessential uh, um, rural medicine kind of family practice doctor, small town doctor, and and hear that last part about the stories uh, that drew you to psychiatry. And I think they they may think well as a as a small town family practice doc, it's a lot of the same stuff, a lot of those same stories. Is is there the the pathology or just the the stories specifically to mental health that drew you in? I think it's hard to say. It's probably a combination of those and maybe other elements to the story. The The beauty of a person's story and their experience in their life that can really be beneficially and drastically altered, though we're not necessarily changing elements of that person's life. So we're kind of reworking the way a person intentionally and meaningfully conceptualizes their own life and their circumstances and their connection to others and how healing is born out of that. And I think it's that element of the adaptability and evolution of a story that really drew me deeply towards psychiatry. Mm -hmm. As a psychiatrist, what sorts of pathologies or... Uh, patients are you treating or are you drawn to treating in your specialty? Well, because I work within the residency, we tend to see the full gamut of mental health issues, be it anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, psychosis, schizophrenia, cognitive disorders, ADHD, substance use disorders, other cognitive issues and dementia. So we see really expansive wealth of psychopathology. And because we're located in here in Tucson, Arizona, and we're a big catchment center for the mental health community, we get to see a very diverse, not just psychopathology, but also patients across an, a number of varying socioeconomic and cultural strata which I think really helps to keep things uh, interesting, keep things diverse and engaging in terms of the learning and the patient care. So we deal with a lot. You know, I say with my residents that there's probably two things in order to be ideal psychiatrists or psychiatrists who can help find um, beneficial outcomes for patients. At scale, there are probably two things that they want to understand more than anything else. And at this point in our medical, uh, modern medical society or modern medical age, the things that they really need to understand well are loneliness and trauma. Because those are really our epidemiologic crisis of our age. And if we could figure out ways to help patients navigate those, we'd probably be in the best service to our patients. Now, you're the program director for the psychiatry program there in Tucson. When Correct. when you are evaluating an application, what are you looking for trait-wise? What are you looking for as you're, as you're looking through an application to see if a student has any particular traits that you think you've noticed are, are really good to make a successful psychiatrist in your program? It's probably not too different from what program directors across most specialties would be looking for, in that certainly we'd like to see a 
proven, demonstrated approach to academic excellence and rigor as a part of an applicant's candidacy towards residency, that they are good listeners, because of course this is vital to the practice of competent, effective medicine. Um, What might be a little different in terms of good listening with regard to psychiatry is that we are, of course, very interested in the content of what somebody is sharing, because it's important to have uh, the appropriate data, the historical facts, the chronologic development of issues, and even of the person themselves. But we, we also want to see for candidates is that they have a good ear for context and how they can align an understanding of not just the events, but the context of a person's um, social life, their cultural background, their financial health, their education, their all these elements that we t- talk about when we talk about what's called the biopsychosocial formulation mm-hmm. of patient care, how we align that content and that context together to have a clear, well, hopefully more clear understanding of our patients and the things that would be beneficial to them. Yeah. So a good ear for context is one of those things. The other thing that I think is really important and are things that I tend to look for, as especially when we're sitting down with applicants, is a growth mindset. What I mean by growth mindset is written in a great book called Mindset by Carol Dweck, who is a clinical psychologist, and she differentiates the idea between growth mindset and fixed mindset. And I think, like much of medicine, psychiatry is one of those fields where we really would like to see somebody understand that their ability to function well comes from the belief that they can develop skills over time and improve their ability to connect with others which is done through a growth mindset. Now, one of the things you mentioned was the academic success. And I, I think a lot of students get frustrated at some point. They're like, well, I had, to, I had to prove myself with my GPA in undergrad. I had to prove myself with the MCAT. I had to prove myself with grades in medical school. Why? Like, I want to be a psychiatrist. What is my step one score? Like, why does that matter? What? Why are you looking for academic success for your residents? Well, first thing that comes up as you ask that question is empathy. Because I definitely <laughs> feel that... Uh, That same question that came up for me as I was applying for residency as well, because in many ways, the applicants coming through medical school and looking for residency, they're proven in that they've had to take the exams, they've had to do well. And now there's this step one, which becomes this really scary boogie man or boogie person, because it feels like there's so much writing on it. And I think that's a really difficult thing for Uh, even program directors or graduate medical education offices to make sense of, because we'd like the search for physicians to be far more holistic and wholesome in design. So it is troubling that there is potentially this test. I think what speaks to the value of the test is this may be one of our few ways to really standardize our understanding of how clinically, or not clinically rather, how academically um, 
trained or trainable somebody may be. And I think that's a certain aspect to it, that there's not a lot of ways to compare candidates more equally because some schools are different, some of the focuses are different, some schools are newer and some are older. So it's hard to know even at times the quality of a school compared with others. Not that the quality of the school necessarily dictates the quality of the candidate, but this is one of the ways that we just try and make sense of things. Yeah, We're certainly in a time where we're trying to reduce the emphasis on our uh, use of step one. Actually, the GME here at the University of Arizona is involved in what's called the user study. This is a study they developed for the past two years, and our program is a part of it. What the user study does is it blinds the program directors to the step one score. So all of our application review, our invitations, and our selections of candidates is done without the program directors knowing the step one scores. And it's not until after the rank list is set that the program directors have the ability to unblind themselves. <laughs> and they the go, don't, scores. no, not that one. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. And so we're we're developing the data on that, and it looks like because our program, psychiatry, has participated in in it for the past two years, and it looks like the step scores we're coming to understand mean a lot less to the programs involved in the study, and that they don't need to be used as strongly or as uh, discerningly when we're really looking at the comprehensive view of the quality of a candidate. Yeah. I think one of the things that that I think about with academic success is the fact that students still have your uh, like in-service exams and board exams and all the you still have more tests even when you hit residency. And obviously, as a program, you're judged on pass rates and all of that stuff as well that students maybe don't think about. Is that something that plays in a little bit? There is that element to it, and there are some fields in medicine where there's just a stronger correlation in terms of a step one score to whether or not somebody's going to pass the boards. Mm -hmm. Psychiatry is not, uh, at least to my knowledge, uh, in my review of the literature available, is not one of those that's strongly correlated Mm -hmm. step one score to whether or not somebody is going to pass the boards. But yes, you're definitely correct in that there's still this ongoing testing. Yeah, And it's important for us to know that somebody is uh, equal to the challenge in terms of staying up to date with that basic fundamental information and with their test-taking skills so that they're more likely to pass those necessary steps or test all along the way, whether that's the in-service training exams or the boards or the recertification exams and any additional training that somebody might pursue. Yeah. Now, are you undertaking or is the the institution undertaking this study in preparation for the potential uh, of the USMLE going pass-fail? You know, it wasn't actually part of the consideration whether the USMLE was going pass-fail in terms of us kind of piloting or trying this out first. Uh, To be quite honest, the thing that really seemed to motivate it from our GME was this concern of the the rising suicide rates and depression for medical students. And it's well known that that physicians have a higher suicide rate 
than the general public. And there used to be this barrier or gap between the suicide rate for physicians and the suicide rate for residents and medical students. But across the past 10 years, five years especially, there is quickly closing this gap between the elevated suicide rate for physicians and the elevated suicide rate for medical students. And so there's part of training that we seem to maybe not be getting right or at least certainly places for us to improve. And perhaps this overemphasis on idealized versions of a candidate, including an idealized score of step one, is one of those first places that we can really re-examine and say, hey, is this necessary? Do we really need to drive our results or the quality of our perceived candidates towards this effort? Or is there a way to do it in a healthier fashion? And more than anything else, I'd, I'd say it was this concern for the well-being of medical students and the concern over increasing depression rate, increasing suicide rate that really led to the motivation for the study. Nice. I think there's a myth out there that someone who is on this path to becoming a physician, they can't seek help for depression, for bipolar disorder, for for anything that they're struggling with because they're afraid that they'll never get a medical license. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and maybe bust some of those myths? Yeah, well, I'm not certain if I can bust them, but I will do my best <laughs> in that I think it is really unfortunate that that is the perceived belief that um, it's a different type of fallibility in terms of having a mental health issue versus a physical medical issue, where, say, there may not be the same level of concern for a physical medical diagnosis in terms of that impacting the ability of somebody to become a physician Mm -hmm. when compared to a medical psychiatric diagnosis. Part of that is just cultural stigma that's been embedded in our society for a very long time. And that stigma often relating to this idea that mental illness is some form of, of weakness and that that weakness is within that person and their mind. And the more we understand mental illness, the more we understand that this is not true, that there are deficits or deficiencies that at time sometimes do happen physically within a person. And this can be the expression of mental illness or a mental health diagnosis. But there are certainly other ways that these illnesses evolve, and that can relate to genetic background. It can relate to the pressures around that person's life, be them social, be them um, spiritual, existential, and that they are normal for all of us, that there are problems that are out there that we don't necessarily have to hide to feel like we're just as good as everybody else. And in fact, in having this conversation about how our own wellness and need to take care of ourselves as providers is really paramount to us being of any ability to serve our patients in a healthy way. Yeah. So I'd like to say that it's we're coming into an age where it's understood that some of these problems are, are natural and they happen quite commonly. 
And that shouldn't be any reason that somebody should need to feel shame or feel less than others. And in fact, maybe uh, an additional benefit to their ability in some ways to understand how to help others in a, a more meaningful, holistic way. Yeah. Looking back at applicants again for your program, you talked about kind of what you're looking for that helps a student stand out. What is a very common red flags that you see that would make it easy for you to to pass over an application? Well, we did talk about that idea of a growth mindset where somebody understands that they need to develop in order to be uh, able to grow and help the development of somebody else who might be their, their patient. So what might be a red flag may be somebody who doesn't have a clear understanding that there are skills that they can grow over time that would allow them to function better as a human being or as a psychiatrist. And so they may come with this idea that, oh, I am a great doctor because I'm a natural talent. <laughs> and it's that natural talent that allows me to do this job better than anybody else. And perhaps others aren't able to do it in that same way because they don't have this gift that I have, which is at times a real block to somebody learning how to grow or deal with problems because there's this natural assumption that well, if they can't muster it up through their natural talent, that there's no way to overcome or navigate new or difficult situations. Yeah. So a red flag, even though it's not, say, a clear uh, red flag that you can necessarily intuit off of a heiress application, but it is something that we look at about how maybe somebody understands their ability to grow and change over time and hopefully in a way that they can both serve themselves and serve others around them. So that's one of those things. I wouldn't say that failures of any kind academically are necessarily a red flag when it comes to at least our own program's review of an application. But when it's maybe consistent academic difficulty in different areas where there was maybe academic difficulty in the pre-clinical years in some courses, and then you see uh, maybe a failure or suboptimal passes in the clinical years, and then low scores or a, multiple failures in the step one and step two. Even though any one of these things wouldn't necessarily be a red flag when there's a combination of them. This is one of those places where we might be more concerned about the ability of somebody to make it through psychiatric training or psychiatry residency uh, in a successful way. Yeah. It's interesting that the first part that you mentioned, it, it, it reminded me as a parent of two young kids, how they teach you how to talk to your kids now when, when your kid does something great and exceptional, you're not supposed to say, oh my God, you're so smart. You're supposed to say, wow, you, you worked really hard to get that answer, whatever the situation is, right? To, so that they know that um, as you were saying, right, that that if they encounter a situation, they're not like, well, I thought I was smart enough to handle this. I guess I'm not, so I'm just going to quit. And I think that's the clear separation between results orientation and process orientation. 
and because there's just so much in medicine to know and psychiatry alone being so vast, but then you have the whole of medicine being so diverse and great that you can't possibly know everything. So always having the right answer or the right outcome is improbable at best. Yeah. And it's much more about being engaged within a process to help develop optimal answers over time. So that value of process orientation over results orientation, I think really serves not just the, the fundamentals of medicine well, but also a person's approach to becoming more competent in any, any field of medicine. Yeah. Once a, a student or at this point, a resident is in your program, what is he or she doing to be a successful resident day in and day out as part of the team? So in order to be successful during residency, there, and this is something that uh, perhaps is more my personal take, or at least the culture around which we have built our re uh, psychiatry residency here in Tucson, is this understanding that psychiatry is not the result that we're looking for. It is in itself a process. And that people who graduate from our program are not psychiatrists first and human beings second. They are always primarily human beings and psychiatry ends up being an expression of that humanity. So in order to be a really great psychiatrist and function well as a resident within psychiatry training, they're aware of this idea that they need to be healthy human beings first and connect with people in that idea that there's not this vital hierarchy between who is the physician and who is the patient and who has this title or, or this name. So that's one of those places where in order to be successful within residency, we really try and promote that idea to take care of one's own self in order to be ready to connect with other people on a team and assess their needs and help interact with them and to help patients and provide excellent patient care, that that happens through the health and well-being of the person taking care of themselves in order to serve others. So that's, I, I know, maybe a more abstract way of looking at how we design it, but there are certainly tasks and standards that we employ in terms of residents performing really well in residency. One of those things is knowing that as a physician, in many ways, whether you're a junior resident, senior resident, CEO of a hospital organization, at every level of physicianship, you are going to be viewed as a leader. And in that leadership role, are you able to work collaboratively with your teammates, be them your patients, be them other physicians, be they other providers, in ways that everybody can communicate through conflict and distress really well. And psychiatrists uh, are one of those fields that are really well suited to deal with conflict management. So being a leader through conflict management is one of those places where we really emphasize the training and competence of our physicians in, in psychiatry. Were there other elements that you were maybe wanting to address when it comes to 
uh, resident functioning and residency. No, I think I think you hit on some good ones there. Let's talk about the fact that as medical students are trying to figure out where they want to go, it seems like the residency application is going through the same issue that med school applications are going through where students are just applying to more and more and more programs and more and more and more medical schools. There are roughly 300 psychiatry programs in the country. How is a medical student supposed to figure out where they would be a good fit? And are there are there significant differences in programs that a student should be thinking about? Well, at this point, psychiatry residencies are very diverse. Many of them, or all of them rather, still have the requirements from the ACGME about what rotations need to take place at certain times and making sure that all of those are fulfilled in order to graduate somebody successfully. But the way in which that path develops for residencies is very different. So some residencies are more able to achieve those rotations and those experiences through a community-based program where you're seeing patients who are perhaps a bit more marginalized, have a lack of resources, and may not have, say, uh, the most resources available to them for the sake of the program itself being more community-based. There are, of course, academic programs where Maybe there is not just an emphasis on excellent patient care, but also an emphasis on research and performing or publishing in ac different academic domains. You have other programs that may be private programs uh, or large medical system programs. Actually, our program here is a mix of all of those things, given the development that our program has had over the years. So you do get maybe different focuses uh, that programs have, and that might be part of the understanding of what program to be interested or pay more attention to, is if that medical student has a desire to work with a specific patient population, be it community-based, be it working within research and translational research, uh, be it working in a more kind of private employment set, uh, set up. And those might be some differentiations for, for the medical students. I actually tell my medical students here at the university to consider the idea of the main reason that medical students will match to a program is the exact same reason that that medical student may be with their significant other. So at times we'll sit down in my office to have a conversation and say, Tell me the reason that you're with your significant other. Or if the person doesn't have a significant other, I may say, well, in a relationship that you know well or in a prior relationship that you had, what was the reason that you were with that significant other? And uh, they may offer up a reason. <laughs> Many might end in fact, say, I don't know, and I don't make any judgments about the health of their relationship. I just leave that one alone. <laughs> but whatever the reason that they tell me, I'll, I'll usually say, well, actually, it turns out the reason that you're with your significant other is the same reason that most medical students match to the residency they end up in. And it's demographics. It's location. It's geography. 
If you look at the NRMP survey data from medical students and the top reason they match to a program, by far and away, the top reason is geography. Yeah. But if you go to your significant other and you say, hey, honey, you know the reason that we're together is because you <laughs> lived within 25 miles of my home. <laughs> I, use, I use that all the time when I talk to students. Do you? That's yeah. so funny because because <laughs> yeah. I, I do a lot of mock interviews with students. They're like, hey, why do you want to come to our school? Well, location is, I'm like, if you were going to date someone, exactly. you know, if you're going to date someone, they don't want to know that you want to date them just because it's convenient because they're local to you. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. And that can kill the romance very quickly. <laughs> Definitely. So I help the maybe medical students just like you do to understand, well, there are maybe other elements to that relationship that are vital and that give you those warm fuzzies. Yep. So if you know what's particular to you developing a relationship of any kind, well, what is the purpose and design behind it? What gives you those warm fuzzies? Is that available at that program? And for some, that might be the culture of the program is such that I can connect with people in deeper levels. And that's what gives me the warm fuzzies for others. It might be, I'm really interested in this particular type of research. And I know this researcher who I've read all of their papers on that this is the person I want to train with, or perhaps for somebody else, it's about the extracurriculars that are involved, like international rotations or the ability to do volunteerism and advocacy that might be a part of the program. So if you know what gives you those warm fuzzies, then there are ways to find that out about a program. And when you're in an interview, to bring that out in the discussion first, rather than overemphasizing that, oh, by the way, I really do <laughs> want to live here or I want to set down roots here or all of my family's here because yeah. that is important. Program directors realize that, that it is a big reason why medical students will match to yeah. a certain residency. But at the same time, if there isn't that connection, whether you call it warm fuzzies or that purpose and meaning, however you uh, want to term it, that it may not end up being the best fit. Yeah. That's hilarious that you use that same kind of analogy. I use that all the time. Students are like, oh, that makes complete sense. I understand now. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And I take it you have never called them out on, hey, don't tell your significant other that you just told me. <laughs> I don't know the reason that we're together. Yeah, no, don't want to do that either. Okay. Um, <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. I think we've covered a ton of stuff to help a medical student kind of figure out their journey into a psychiatry residency to to make them stand out, to hopefully avoid some red flags uh, and really pick the program that they want. Are there any last words of wisdom for the pre-med or medical student out there who is interested in psychiatry, things that they can do to potentially get started on this path? Well, one really concrete tip that I think is a wonderful ready resource for people is from the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, and they have a guide to applying for psychiatry residencies called the Roadmap to Psychiatry Residencies that's available for free online as a PDF to download. So if somebody's looking for not just kind of the ins and outs of when to apply, how to put a fourth year together how to select programs. They have a really great guide there, but also it gives a nice 
say, methodology to building a medical student career that aligns itself well with being a good candidate for psychiatry residency. So that would be one tip that I would provide. Another is that NRMP, and I know, Ryan, that you at times have podcast episodes that you've released that goes over NRMP data in terms of matches. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really excellent. Um, Of course, I'm going to plug that people should listen to your show and listen to those episodes (laughs) because those are... I haven't done one of those in a while. Well, it might be time to bring one back. I think I last year listened to your... Was it 2018 psychiatry residency NRMP? Mm, probably, yeah. Breakdown. I felt much smarter as a result. So thank you for that. <laughs> Good. I'm glad I got signed off from a program director. So thank you for On that. On top, of course. <laughs> On top of that, there are also surveys from NRMP about what program directors are looking for, what they value when it comes to reviewing applications and candidacy, yep. as well as surveys from medical students in terms of what they were looking for and how they ended up matching to a program. So I think those surveys have a wealth of information available in them, and I'd recommend that people look into those. Maybe the last tip that I could offer is, um, actually, in a way, it was a problem that I experienced as I was in my own psychiatry training program. So it was in the fourth year of psychiatry residency, and I actually graduated from psychiatry residency here at the University of Arizona. So I, I know this program from both sides, both as a resident as, and as an attending and program director. But in my fourth year, we're asked to give grand rounds. And so likely medical students know that grand rounds is a lecture given within a department that talks about an area of expertise or understanding in that particular field that somebody gets to share with others. And so for the fourth years in our program, I was trying to sort out, well, what's my area of expertise or what do I know? It felt like after three full years of training that maybe I wasn't much of an expert in anything at that point. And so the anxiety of trying to put the Grand Rounds lecture together was building up. And with it, all of the regular uh, themes of imposter syndrome that most of us have to deal with. But at one point in my trying to propose, what am I going to talk about? Will it be geriatric psychiatry? Will it be palliative health? Will it be trauma? I asked myself a very fundamental question, which was, what is psychiatry? And one of the scariest things happened at that point, which was, no answer came to mind when I asked myself after three full years of training, what is psychiatry? And I didn't have an answer, um, but I was able to take a step back and just wait for something to bubble up, which it did. And the answer that came up in that moment, once I put the anxiety aside and took a couple deep breaths, was that psychiatry is the field of medicine best suited to celebrate the human experience. And that became my understanding of psychiatry. And I would kindly challenge others that as they're looking at fields of medicine to not just describe it on that own field's term, but develop a definition for yourself. 
And a lot of the times these definitions are embedded like gastroenterology. Well, we know what that is. Ology is study of gastrointestinal system. We study that. Or nephrology, where we're studying nephrons and the kidneys and cardiology, pulmonology. But with psychiatry, you don't have an ology to break it down. Uh, even if psyche means in Greek soul, that doesn't necessarily make it any more clear in terms of what psychiatry is. But uh, I think this is one of those things that I would really recommend for candidates developing an understanding for yourself of what that medical field means to you, because it will likely help to drive your purpose, understanding and engagement within it. The thing I like about psychiatry is that I believe it to be different from other areas of medicine in that it's not necessary, say for something like nephrology, that a nephrologist has a better GFR themselves and their patients in order to provide benefit to the patient. Or the cardiologist doesn't necessarily need a better ejection fraction and the pulmonologist doesn't necessarily need a bi better vital capacity than their patients in order to provide health and healing. But in psychiatry, at times, it really does become necessary in some ways to have maybe not a better mental health or wellness, because in many ways, some of my patients are far healthier in those domains than I am but at times a more ready access to mental health and wellness in order to provide benefit and healing to somebody else. And so it's that idea that at the same time that we serve our patients, we also derive benefit and satisfaction in our own well-being, I think, in terms of maybe separating psychiatry in part from other fields. Because like, of course, it's imperative across all fields to have a sense of wellness in order to provide health for others. But I believe in psychiatry, it's that regular dedication to the practice of developing oneself to better connect with others around you and to hopefully provide them some kind of guidance or safe space in order for their own development to take place. All right, so there you have it. Another hopefully great discussion for you with Dr. Jason Curry, psychiatrist at the University of Arizona, a program director for the psychiatry residency. Hopefully you learned something today that will help you either on your journey to psychiatry or on your journey to another program because of the knowledge that you learned here today. I want to ask you to share this podcast with your classmates, share it with your school, with an advisor at your school. Let them know that this podcast is out here for free to help students figure out their path in life. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories, where we talk to an interventional pain and regenerative medicine specialist. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.